I do believe there is a perception that if I achieve certain milestones, I'm going to be funded. And it's a belief that if I check a certain number of boxes, the funding portion is gonna be easy. It's just not the case. The early stage venture folks are looking for market opportunity, leadership teams, and some traction. It's not just one of those, it's all of those. Hello, and welcome to Funded, a podcast by Pixel Recess. I'm your host, Mark Hubbard, we're getting to know Atlanta's startup and funding market this season, and we couldn't do that without talking to today's guest. Sean Banks is a partner at TTV Capital, the Southeast's leading VC institution focused on the fintech sector. Sean has been at TTV most of its life, and this conversation gives us the chance to learn a bit about that history and what it takes to be a company that TTV would find compelling. As always, subscribe to and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and please visit pixelrecess.com to provide feedback and to learn about our work as a product and venture studio. Thanks for listening. Mark, thanks for having me. I'm Sean Banks. I'm a partner at TTV Capital. TTV Capital, by background, is an early stage venture capital firm headquartered in Atlanta that focuses on fintech investing at the Series A, Series C, Series B rounds of financing. The firm's been around for 21 years. I've been at TTV as a member of the investment team for the past 16 years and I've been a partner there for a little over a decade now. Prior to joining TTV Capital, I was a CFO and general counsel of an Atlanta area tech startup. And before that, I was a naval officer for five years. Oh, okay, so we got a lot of stuff to talk about here. So where are you, where are you from? Are you from the South? I actually grew up in Atlanta. I'm one of the seven or eight natives, yeah. so, you know, elementary school and high school all the way through. Really? All the way through. And where did you go to the school? Elementary school was Christ the King and then high school was me. All right. And then what did you think you were going to do as you were growing up? What, what were you drawn toward? Oh, heck, I simply wanted to play college baseball. So, <laughs> another one of those. <laughs> yeah, another one of those. And, and, uh, and the opportunity presented itself at the Naval Academy. When I looked across the different opportunities for college, the one that presented the greatest challenge was by far going to Annapolis. And as a glutton for punishment, I, I jumped on that and went up there. And it was an extremely challenging four years going through a military service academy, but it's the best thing I ever did. So tell me why. Were you wired for that? I don't even know that it's a wiring thing per se. Both my grandfather and my father were military officers, but neither one was on active duty at any point during my lifetime. So my dad was already done flying for the Navy when I was born. So we didn't have a ton of exposure to it growing up. That being said, as I was applying to colleges, my dad had suggested that I go and meet with the Blue and Gold Officer, who are the folks who act as liaisons for the high schools for the Naval Academy. He said it might be a very good process to go through. And I did. I went through the process and they're poking and prodding you on the, <laughs> the you know, moral, mental and physical elements of everything that you've done. Right. You've got to go out and seek congressional nominations. And they felt that I could potentially contribute on the baseball team. And I think that more than <laughs> so that, wired, that overweighed all the other stuff. <laughs> as crazy as it sounds, it really did. And believe me, uh, I'm not going to sit here and beat my chest and say that I got up there and it was great and I, I kicked butt. Uh, 
it was a humbling experience. It was a challenging experience, but it was an experience that ultimately I think made me a man. And that was, that was a good thing. Did you want to fly? Actually, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And as I was up there, I actually wanted to be a Marine infantry officer. That did not happen for me because unfortunately baseball injured me. So I had pretty significant reconstructive surgery on my arm between my junior and senior year. And so I, I did not end up uh, becoming a Marine. Uh, what position did you play? I was a, a really bad middle relief pitcher. <laughs> oh, okay. And so yeah. what, what happened? Did you just throw your arm out at some point? Yeah. Lots of travel baseball as a kid. And you get, you spend the summer pitching a hundred innings when you're 14, 15 years old and you don't realize it. But by the time you're 18 or 19, that's it for that ligament. When you're coming out then after that five years, what did you think you wanted to do as a career? When the Marine Corps option did not matriculate that I probably was not going to make a career out of the Navy, which was fine. I couldn't tell you the precise numbers. A lot of folks do spend their five years and then move on to civilian life. And in preparation for making that move, during my shore command, I went and completed my law degree at the University of San Diego at night. So I would be on the base for most of the day and then there at night and if I had watch or whatever. It was very fortunate I had some really good bosses who I worked for out in San Diego who would uh, allow me the time to make sure I got to class by six, seven o'clock at night. And if I had final exams, they would make exceptions if there was something going on. But otherwise, I did miss a decent amount of class for certain things. My my job out there kind of had me on call 24 hours a day. In, in looking at getting my JD, I had never really been interested in becoming an attorney, which seems yeah. counterintuitive. Right. But I, it was 1997, 1998, and I started looking around trying to think what was going to be my post-military career. And venture capital is getting extremely hot. Mm-hmm. And tech startups were getting extremely hot up in the Bay Area. And I thought it'd be really interesting to try to find a way to make myself valuable right. to that community. You don't code. I don't code. Absolutely right. not. Uh, I was an economics major undergrad. Now, we, we all have bachelor's of science degrees because we take enough electrical engineering at Annapolis right. to, to know our way around a general circuit board. But I decided that was the path I wanted to go down. So when I finished my last tour in San Diego, I had an opportunity to come back for business school. And the business school we elected to choose was at, at Emory, at Guesueta. They offered a Woodruff Fellowship, and I was extremely honored to have that opportunity to go over there. We came back and I wanted to pursue the dream of potentially becoming a venture capitalist. So during business school, I worked for free for startups that I could find that were either around Emory. I did a directed study over at ATDC, which is the Georgia Tech Incubator. During the summer between my first and second year of my MBA, it was the first summer after September 11th. The job market was relatively soft, especially for interns. And I was fortunate enough that Gardner Gerard, who was a Goizueta grad himself and the founder of TTV, was willing to say, I'll take on an intern for the summer. We're not going to pay them, but they can be here and learn what venture capital is about. So I went over and spent that summer working for Gardner and Tom Smith, knowing that on the back end, there wasn't going to be a job. And that was completely fine with me. I just wanted to get some exposure to the industry. Coming out of Goizueta, I stayed with a startup that had been started by a number of uh, Service Academy grads. And 
Uh, Phil, the CFO general counsel role over there, since I had been to law school, had passed the bar, wasn't a practicing attorney per se. Right. With the internship that I had done at TTV, I understood cap tables and liquidation waterfalls and all the different elements of the mechanics of venture funding. And I stuck with that crew for 18 months. We, we went without pay. My wife was thrilled. We had already had our first kid. I was now post MBA and JD and making no money. So she was not necessarily thrilled with the general career choices. I say that in chess. <laughs> She's been supportive sure. the entire way. And frankly, she held us together by busting her own tail to, to keep the family duly monetized during the lean years. Yeah. Uh, and the opportunity to rejoin TTV on a full-time capacity came when their principal decided that when she was having her second child, she wanted to not come back to work. And they felt that I had done a nice job for them during mm -hmm. the summer and I was a known entity for sure. them. And so they gave the call and that was February 1st, 2005 was my uh, first day full-time at TTV. And we're pushing well, 16 and a half years later. So in San Diego, part of the decision for law school is that you've already decided you want to be an inventor. Mm -hmm. At your least goal. I wanted to try. I was trying right. to figure out what's the best right. way to build the story. Correct. Right. So that's the goal. Yep. The connection to startups is that is to get in there, find a way, find an angle. How many years is it for you to actually get from there to being a principal at a venture capital company? A little over three and a half years. So it still took three and a half, four years <laughs> to find how to break in. And you got lucky in that process, you think? Totally. And I absolutely explain to folks who ask me, how do I get into venture? And I try to tell them, and it's not in any sort of mean spirited way, but you need to have a option one and venture needs to be option two. And so I was fully committed to helping the startup that we were working for see that thing through. It, it became evident that company was not going to be long for the road when the decision was made to pull the plug and, and jump over to TTV. But had TTV not been an option, definitely would have looked at continuing in the early stage tech community because I found it enthralling. Starting a business from scratch, you have such um, a dichotomy of two elements working. You have one, which is I, I found a problem that I think I can create a very good solution for people and it's a big market opportunity. And so you've got this kind of strategy element to it. At the same time, you've got the tactics because if you are a business, you've got to make payroll and you've got to find a way to do all of the elements to actually keep the lights on. And, it, and that's a very compelling, very energizing opportunity, especially for Look, a young ex-military officer, when you're a division officer on a ship or you've got a platoon of Marines, you are put in a situation where the job has to be done, but you also have to provide leadership and oversight. It's very fulfilling to not be a cog in a machine at a big company right. that a lot of junior military officers move into because they do extremely well in those situations as well to be in the startup world mm -hmm. where... There is no net necessarily, and you can make it really big or you can flame out fairly quickly. I always tell the folks who are looking at this, also understand what your personal risk profile is at the mm. time. I, I fortunately had a working spouse and we did have uh, our firstborn at that point in time, but we were in a fairly stable position and, and I could take those chances. Now, if I was the only provider with three dependents, I probably wouldn't have stuck with early stage stuff. And worst case scenario, I, I could have bolted from the startup world and, and tried to find a law firm to cut my right. teeth and become a real attorney, not just one on TV. What did that background teach you 
that you use now that really you think other people maybe didn't get the fact that you were military, but also like military in a very established way, military academy and with a law degree. What did you learn from that that applies to your ability to get to where you are, to how you do what you do now that someone who didn't have those experiences wouldn't understand maybe? The experiences that I tend to draw on the most that I think have been important for me are twofold. From the junior military officer Annapolis standpoint, it is the need to provide in all facets of what you do for a living, the servant leadership. You're not meant to be dictatorial. You're most effective when you can get people to move together as a unit in a right direction, which is a military concept at its core. But really, if it's a portfolio company, right, and you're on the board of directors of that portfolio company and there's other investors, you want to try to provide some influence and leadership that brings people together towards a common mission versus necessarily trying to be, I don't know, VCs get a bad reputation because some folks try to be the smartest person in the room. I, I don't think that's the way to go about it. If anything, I'm a member of the team if I'm sitting on a CEO's board of directors and I want to do everything I can to help that team uh, achieve its mission. From the law perspective, the first day you show up at law school, I remember the professors at the University of San Diego said something that you don't know what you are right now. You guys are first years and you're just struggling to keep your head above water, but you're going to, you're going to realize that at some point, probably midway through your second year, the way you think about everything is going to change. I did not believe it at the time, but I wholeheartedly believe it. There's a point in time where how you process facts, situations, and think through strategies and risks and all those kind of things. And that's been very good. Now, one of the elements of the JD that has also been very helpful is understanding how to best work with counsel and outside counsel. Hmm. And I'm sure I'm pain in the bottom for those folks to work. <laughs> but from fortunately, I speak their language. Yeah. And if you're a lay person who hasn't worked a ton with lawyers, and I've seen this when doing venture deals, if I've got a CEO who's coming and they've never worked with outside counsel and we're negotiating deal documents and the CEO doesn't know when to turn the lawyers off because he or she has gotten to the point where the risk has already been squeezed out of the situation, Right. But there's a chance that this other and they keep negotiating down, you get yourself in a, in, in a problem because the, the outside counsel's role is to provide the business person with all of the different risks and have the business person understand what risk are they willing to take and what's the countermeasure and offset. And so I think I've been in a pretty decent position understanding when to shut those things off as you think about big picture risk and, and deal negotiations. What do you feel like is the biggest misconception for a founder that hasn't gotten funded by venture capital before or would like to get into venture capital but ha isn't part of that world yet? What's the biggest misconception in your mind between what they think of as that whole world and that whole experience and what it's actually like? It's a great question. I do believe there is a perception that if I achieve certain milestones, I'm going to be funded. And it's a belief that if I check a certain number of boxes, the funding portion is going to be easy. It's just not the case. The early stage venture folks are looking for market opportunity, leadership teams, and some traction. It's not just one of those, it's all of those. I've seen a lot of folks who've been perpetually chasing funding and they say, I've reached that milestone at which you funded this other company. But if it took you seven years to do it, it's not necessarily a compelling return because ultimately the venture capital investors 
represent the limited partners of the funds. And the limited partners of the funds are looking for returns that account for the fact that there's a heavy illiquidity element to the asset class. So we have to outperform the broader public markets in order to be a valuable asset class. So we have to be extremely diligent and every single bet that we lay down needs to potentially offer a a 10x return. Knowing that if we make 20 investments in a fund, there may be five of those that go out of business, frankly. Mm -hmm. We can't be wrote to say that as soon as a company hits a certain milestone of, let's say, revenue traction, and they're in fintech, therefore Mm -hmm. we'll invest. That's just not how it works. Yeah. I think in general, people tend to mix up strategy and tactics. They read a a bunch of blog posts and history and press, and really most of what gets mentioned is tactical. And really what matters from an investment standpoint are the whys behind all those things. Like it's fine that you hit a metric, but like why you did is what we're really trying to understand because that's the thing that can trigger whether or not it makes it an appropriate deal, a deal that looks like it's going to be something special. It's not just the metric that you happen to pick or cherry pick or whatever. It's all of the whys behind all of that that got you there. That's that's exactly right. Exactly right. All right. So talk a little bit about TTV. You've been there for most of the important milestones. I have been a part of the investment team since the beginning of Fund 2. We have seen our first fund was one of the top performing funds. We were the very first institutional money in a company called Green Dot. Green Dot was an extremely successful return, great IPO. How big was Fund 1? $38 million. Was the mandate then fintech or did that happen? So as when, Tom, when Tom and Gardner actually started the firm, Tom had been coming out as the senior executive for IBM in the Southeast. So if you see that IBM tower, Tom was a senior executive who oversaw the building of that. And Tom was the, the guru where IBM would send prospective C-level employees over to work for Tom Smith to, huh. to really get the sales and marketing because Tom is an absolute master at that. And then Gardner had worked in both Synovus and Tesis growing up down in Columbus, Georgia. And the opportunity presented itself with Tom and Gardner pairing up and Synovus' backing to start an early stage venture fund in Atlanta with the mandate to do general tech investing in Atlanta. But they started recognizing that with the Synovus brand, who at the time still held a majority of Tesis' publicly traded stock, that pairing down in Columbus was an extremely attractive beacon for, at the time, what was referred to as tech-enabled financial services companies. So probably about the time I started summering my summer internship with them, they said, you know what, we should just do this tech-enabled financial services. We tend to know it better. Staying on top of the broader tech is really tough because there's so many different things and you really got to be good at something. And so that was the point in time where Tom and Gardner said, this needs to be a fintech and investing fund. We joke about it and I'm sure it's likely not true. I don't know if we coined the phrase or not. I don't think we did. Uh, I mean, literally, if you go back and look at some of our decks, we were talking about your investors in tech enabled financial services. So I'm sure at some point in a meeting, you know, FinTech. And I recall, (laughs) um, because I've had the opportunity through the Technology Association of Georgia to be the head of their FinTech society now for almost 13 years. TAG hosts this event called the Society Showcase. And Mm -hmm. it's a big ballroom room and all 36 of the societies have tables and people come up to try to learn about what's going on with your society. During one of the very first ones, I was at the table, man in the booth with a couple of the other folks who are on the board of directors, the steering committee with me. And these two young guys walked up and they said, what does TAG have anything to do 
with technology in Finland. This fit. <laughs> so we're like, we, we got a long way to go. Uh, so. for, fortunately, these days, uh, it's nobody, no, there's no mistaking what FinTech is anymore. So Fund 2 is a financial focused fund then. How big is yeah. that fund? That fund was 80 million. That was a 2005 fund. So it, it got hammered really with the financial downturn. Right. But we were pleased that we backed two unicorns in that fund, Bill.com and Cardlytics. And we have one other unicorn that that we got into through the acquisition of one of our assets, which I think is going to be a company called Trustly over in the uh, over in the EU. So three IPO unicorns out of that fund. So we're very pleased with that one. And our third fund was a little smaller. We had the Volcker Rule was part of Dodd-Frank as the government initiatives to reduce systemic risk in the financial system, at which point in time we lost you know, our largest limited partner. Synovus oh, really? financial holding company can no longer be an investor in Synovus was re- not replaced per se, but thesis and global payments stepped in as our okay. new strategic investors in the third fund. And that fund was a $40 million fund. So we had a little bit smaller fund and that one's doing great. There's companies in that like MX out in Utah, which is one of the leaders in the digitization of data and around money. It's a unicorn. We sold a company called Shopkeep to Lightspeed, which was one of the early tablet-based point of sales. And that'll be a, a real good investment for us. Mm-hmm. You've got some local companies in there, BitPay, which is the blockchain payments yeah. company up in the Alpharetta, Springbot Commerce, which is a good one. Pago, which is a online and a prepaid opportunity to pay your utility bills. Very excited about what that fund holds. Did it feel like starting over? Was there any angst around that? There was angst around the general market at the time in 2011, trying to mm-hmm. pull together a fund. And a lot of folks were scrambling. We fortunately had really strong backing from TSIS and Global Payments. And so while the fund itself was smaller, it wasn't necessarily foreign to us. We had extreme success with a $38 million fund. So we knew how to manage it. So that was perfectly fine by us. Did you have to change how you went to raise for the next fund then? Did you have to cast a wider net than you had previously because some of the backing LPs had changed? Yeah, for sure. You did. And it's interesting, the limited partner fundraise process is a long cycle. And when I mean a long cycle, in a lot of ways to get to institutional capital, meaning pensions, endowments, you don't normally show up on their doorstep for fund three and they're in fund three. It is a relationship that you cultivate over time because they want to get to know you. They want to get to know your investment style. They want to get to know your performance returns. And so we started having a lot of the conversations that led to successful fundraisers for four and five while we were out doing three. It can take five to 10 years. It can. It can. I guess it really helped that you had those uh, corporate backers. But if you haven't run institutional money before, then it's then it's hard to make it through a consultant. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Four was then how big? Four was 93 million fives 127 and this last one was was a big one yeah. that was oversubscribed right or yes what, now why do you think that is is that a general market trend thing obviously you're you have a better brand different brand than you've had ever before as you build but do you think- i think both of those are true i think that we have shown that we've got a history for finding alpha creating investment opportunities with the different unicorns that we've backed across each of the funds. And every fund has at least one unicorn in it. Obviously, once they're realized, they're a lot more valuable, but at least on paper, we found some really good investments and backed some management teams we're extremely proud of from what they've done to scale their businesses. So what's your ideal scenario? What kind of size and what kind of stage and 
What, how do you really describe what you feel like would be a no brainer for what you all do? Gosh, I wish I could say what a no brainer is, but well, yeah, they're all, I know that's hard. Ideally we're finding an entrepreneur who has raised under $2 million in capital to get themselves to a place where they have a product built. It's in market. They have bordering a million dollar annual run rate in revenues. And really what they're looking to do is scale sales and marketing. Those are the ones where we've had the most success. You think about Tim Sheehan at uh, Greenlight. We were very early on with Scott and Lynn at Cardlytics, Steve Street at Green Dot. Um, sure. So pick yeah. one, pick a, pick a deal that you did that you feel good about. That is a good, really good example of how it can go really well. I won't use the name because I don't want to tell sure. one of my kids that they're prettier than Yeah, them. no, not at all. We do have an investment that is in our fifth fund. When it comes to building pipeline for venture, it's just like any sales pipeline. You want to try to get as many prospects in the top of the funnel as possible. And the prospects you want to get into the funnel, you want to make them as attractive as possible so you get higher conversion rates. That can come from a number of different ways. Once you've got a brand, the brand is going to help you sell more. But you still can't stop going and actively looking based on thematic elements of what you think you need to build in your portfolio. And one of the things we have been looking at is the increasing changing nature of call it e-commerce moving from when it was just eBay and Amazon to where it became mega sites and you had your Shopify's and Magento's and big commerces to where now there's an entire element of e-commerce sellers where embedded commerce inside social media is actually doing much of the demand generation. And now it's about elegant fulfillment on the back end. And I was talking to someone who ran an incubator up okay. in and around Washington, D.C., talking about some of the themes that we were thinking about with our fifth fund. And this would have been probably two and a half, three years ago. And she had mentioned to me that there was a company that had been completely bootstrapped. And oh. the CEO had himself started as an e-commerce merchant trying to sell a product for which he didn't need a catalog. So he didn't have have a whole bunch of different sizes and colors of what he was oh. trying to sell. And he found that the elements of big commerce and Sh Shopify and Magento, they didn't satisfy the need that he was looking for. So he and a friend who was a, a coder developed their own shopping cart platform for his specific goods and services. They then talked to other e-commerce merchants who found a similar challenge and they began to sell it to those folks. And I said, well, you know, that's fine. That's a nice story. And then she says, the interesting part is they haven't taken a dime of outside capital and they've been able to get to a $5 million run rate, 5,000 paying customers and 500 million of gross merchant processing volume. And I said, well, that, that's pretty interesting. I, I asked for an introduction. I got to talk to these guys and they were extremely sharp, extremely passionate, knew their stuff inside and out, understood the sales and marketing elements of what they were doing, had built a great product. And you're looking at that and you're saying they haven't taken any outside money. What can I do to help them really blow this thing up? And as we talked through their business model, they were yet to really tap into the opportunity to get into the payment stream for what they okay. were doing. 
And so that's an opportunity where we look at it and say, all the elements are there. Strong management team, good market penetration, hasn't raised a ton of capital, really disrupting something that's out there and that people are familiar with and comfortable. We're not reestablishing it or inventing a new category, yet there are elements that we can bring with our background and our firm knowledge and depth and our connections to help them take it to the next level. Did they have a stance that they were never going to take capital? Did you have to talk them into the idea? There was some cajoling. They were open to it. They just wanted to take the right capital in. And frankly, that's ideal. Sometimes we'll see this index and it's a little bit off-putting, especially for early stage investors is I'm raising this series A and it's a $5 million raise. And I plan to raise my B in nine months and that's going to be a $30 million raise. And you're like, so what's my money for just to buy you time? Am I a bridge loan to the to a real? Yeah. <laughs> and it, not that it's not. And it really yeah, is sure. every time you're making an investment, you are trying to grow the business and, and potentially either bring somebody in to buy it or raise right. more capital. But you do want to find a management team that looks across the table and says, we really want to find the right money because we feel like there's money out there. And if you're a strong management team and you've got a good market, there's money for you. So the more selective you are about finding the right kind of money and the right kind of folks who are going to be around the board table with you, the, the more appealing that is really to the venture investors. So did, did that deal close in, within the last like year or so? Uh, 18 months ago. 18 months ago. It seems like the competition for deals with the amount of money that's flowing into the number of managers and the amount of money that's flowing into the top 2% of managers means that those kind of deals are harder and harder to do. When it would have been a suitable $5 million investment, those kinds of people have people throwing $15 million at them. Have you started to experience that at all? Have you seen that in, in the market? Sure, for sure. And it's dangerous. If you ever watched Silicon Valley on how I did. It is clearly farcical, but there are definitely elements that are accurate. And, and there's one scene where Richard Hendricks of Pied Piper is sitting at a bar and he's talking to a fellow founder. And the founder is lamenting the fact that he raised too much money in his, in his seed round. And there is an element to that because it can be a crushing burden. If you have too much money, the expectations for growth are not there and the infrastructure, you just can't stand up a company in two or three months and deploy 50 or $100 million in capital in an effective manner. I don't believe so. It's happened, but more times than not, that's, that's gonna be extremely challenging. So you do see people with a little bit of bloated asks for what they want to raise at the earlier stage. And, and unfortunately, I think they sometimes get counsel or as you pointed out, they read blog posts and say, if you're not trying to raise 10, then you've just cut 80% of the marketplace out. And I don't think that's really yeah. accurate. I, I think that you can give a range. It can be a five to 15 or something along those lines. And you have multiple plans and it can be, here's my $5 million raise and here's my $15 million raise and talk about it and work with the investors. Because ultimately once we get in business together, we're married and we want to see this thing to fruition. The folks sitting across the table with the checks, ask them, how do you think we should deploy this capital? Because they're going to have a good feel for it. If it's just, I think you need to raise 15 because my smallest check is 15. I'm not sure that works. I just don't think it works. I had someone from the Valley tell me if you're going to do anything less than five to 8 million, that should just be on a safe. That's how you know wacky the numbers have gotten that they'll create expectations like that. Yes. 
But I will tell you this, I've been in this business now and it's crazy to think, but 17 years plus two years before that as is an intern, it ebbs and flows. It ebbs and flows. Sure. Seven years ago, a $3 million raise was a series A. Yeah. Now, if it's less than 15, it's a series seed. But all of that is just nomenclature. At the end of the day, raise the right amount of capital, take the right amount of dilution that you're comfortable with and work with your venture partner to build your business. What is your personal feeling about first time founders versus serial? Does it change the way you think about it? How how do you process that factor? Serial entrepreneurs tend to be more attractive because they've gone through the ringer a few times and there's some element of a track record that you can poke and prod on to prove that they are the real deal. The adage we've always used, real estate is location, venture is management. We can have our strategic LPs try to help us vet market opportunity. Is the tech really good? But it's up to us to go to the driving range and watch the three pros hit drives and determine which one is the club pro, which one's on the nationwide tour, and which one is getting ready to go to the masters. And they all may hit the ball 350 yards and they all may hit it straight. But which one of them is going to be coming down Amen Corner with a lead at Augusta and which one of them is going to be giving lessons to the 13-year-olds on Saturday morning? And not to besmirch any of those folks. We very well can find first-time entrepreneurs who blow it out of the park. But if you asked if I had to place a bet and I knew someone had successfully grown a company before, I'm probably going to lean to them. But that wouldn't mean I wouldn't back the other guy also. Does that change what you'll do in a deal? Everybody hears if it's a founder who had a big exit and everybody's happy and that guy's so brilliant now, do you fund her even though it probably wouldn't meet your criteria for a first time funder on that business? I think she would have an easier time raising a slightly larger round than the first time entrepreneur. Because with the first time entrepreneur, there's a bit of a hedge against growing pains and trying to figure out, will that person get to the same stage that she's at with the same corporate knowledge of understanding why you backed her who had already had a successful exit. We're going through a bit of a national reckoning around diverse founders and audiences that have just been completely excluded. And we know that, as they say, genius is evenly distributed and yet opportunity certainly isn't. And and you can tell that within the venture capital field as much or more than anywhere else. So how do you feel personally about trying to find more diverse founders to support more who probably by necessity you're going to fall into first time founder kinds of scenarios. How do you think through all of that when you also have a fiduciary responsibility to your investors and it's a complicated idea? I think from a fundamental level, there are significant opportunities across the diversity landscape to not only make a difference, but also meet the LP demands for returns. Now, we've backed several companies in the last two months that we think have real opportunities with minority founders to blow it out of the water. And we didn't back them because they were in minority founders. We backed them because we thought they were extremely smart business people and they had recognized a market opportunity that was neglected. And in in both cases, the market opportunity that had been neglected was to bring more financial services and financial inclusion to otherwise excluded groups. Looking broadly across the table, there's absolutely opportunities there. I remember an anecdote we heard from a female consultant who's a good friend of ours at the firm. And this was going on 10 or 12 years ago. She walked into a boardroom 
of a publicly traded payments company where she had been retained to help them think through what was the next strategic opportunity for them. And she looked around the room and she said, listen, guys, and it was a room predominantly of older white guys. And she said, you aren't the ones who are spending the money. So you need to change the paradigm of what you think of as the the, the next opportunity. And she pointed to the fact that at the time, the most successful contactless mobile payment solution was the Starbucks mobile app. And she said, raise your hand why you think that is. And, and she went around the room and the answers came back. Oh, it's convenient. Oh, people spend more money at Starbucks and they're more tech savvy. And she said, no, we've gone out and we've looked and a majority of the users tend to be female who are utilizing the app. And the reason they like utilizing the app is because right before they get up to buy, they can see the balance that's on their card because for them, one of the decisions on how I'm going to pay is the last thing I want to be is embarrassed by not having money on my card. Huh. And so the functionality and the killer app around that mobile payment would not necessarily have occurred to somebody who was simply looking at it from a, it's about functionality and ease of use. It was, hey, you've got to hit the right emotional connection points with the audience who's going to be the end users for you to really successfully implement something. I always ask this of all funding sources that I talk to. You have a fiduciary responsibility for return. It's not really your money, right? It's other right. people's money that you have stewardship over. How do you feel about decisions or around brilliant jerks. How do you feel in situations where you meet a founder? It's basically unquestionable that it's going to be successful. I really feel like this is going to work. This is the right business at the right time. It seems to be structured the right way, but this person is the worst. I, I wouldn't want to work with this person. I wouldn't want other people to have to work for him necessarily. There's some real flaws that you don't agree with. What do you do in that scenario? Do you take that deal? Do you, do you not take that deal? How do you even think through those kinds of decisions? I'll, I will say that number one, it takes a decent amount out to pry into understanding if that is all the elements around why that person is the way they are. Understanding whether or not it's a facade, understanding really where it is. Now, if you're telling me that the opportunity to make a hundred billion dollars, if you back the devil, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's not worth your firm's reputation for necessarily getting into a, a situation with somebody who is unseemly and takes shortcuts and acts in a manner that besmirches your good name and reputation. I want to make money and I want to make money for my LPs and I want to do what's best for my limited partners. But that doesn't mean I'm going to compromise my values and integrity simply for business. And I think that's where I would fall. And I'm pretty confident my, my partners are, are right there in lockstep with me. Two of my partners have been successful businessmen and they, they like doing this. And this is something that they're not looking to sully their reputation for what they've done simply for the sake of trying to make a buck. They'd much rather find an opportunity and take somebody with the right intentions and the right ethics who has a good idea because they're out there. It's not completely binary. You don't do X and there's zero. You just got to work harder to find something that will replace what you may have lost. And you may not ever get it there, but if you've done it right, you can go to sleep at night and look yourself in the mirror.